0: What's the proper term for a scientist who specializes in flatworms? A planarianist? A planariologist? A potential cannibal? Maybe in this case, we better call Dr. One Pagan as he refers to himself, a bald scientist. It's not specific to his field of study, but it's how he describes himself. Welcome to Iconocast, the science podcast. Yes, it's been a while since our prior podcast, but I am sure that the sheer joy that One expresses in his love of science, especially biology, and its essential framework, evolution, will provide new enjoyment and insight. My name is Mike Habrick, and Greg Leighton and I interview the author of a new book, one we both highly recommend, Strange Survivors. It's an evolution book, and yes, as listeners to a science podcast, you may have read other evolution books, but I promise that this one is worth picking up. Not only does One Pagan shed light on evolution from new angles you may not have considered before, but his dry humor comes through and occasionally may take you by surprise as you find yourself laughing out loud at a science concept. I did. We also discovered that Greg, One, and I had an early appreciation for Isaac Asimov's science essays and the Foundation novels. If you are streaming the show from a podcast, you be sure to go to iconocast.com and follow the link to purchase the book through Amazon. And now, "Strange Survivors"
1: with Oni Pagán. Uh, can, can I ask you why? What compelled you to write this
2: book? Why did you think this book should be out there? I love talking about biology. I've been trained as biochemist and a pharmacologist, but my first uh, love uh, is biology, and there is so many things to know. So many. Uh, I don't know if you remember. I don't know if, what age bracket are you in, but. But I grew up reading Isaac Asimov, yeah, and spe- especially his uh, uh, popular science books. They they were full of so many things that you didn't know, and and that's what I that's my role model, as it were.
0: One of my favorite essays of his was when he was trying to discuss. He was trying to figure out how he could take Fantastic Voyage and make it scientifically possible, freaking uh-huh. those people to be just so small and yet still be able to be functional. And not have so much mass that they would destroy anything that they came in contact with, and all the different things he had to look at, and it was that was pretty fascinating.
2: That's right. That's that's right. And uh, my favorite things of it are the foundation series. Did, did you read those? Yeah. Oh, like six or seven times each. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but I, I found it fascinating that the psychohistorians were able to predict history by mathematics. Uh, and that, that's something that, that that always blew my mind. Yeah,
1: I remember reading his intelligent man guides uh, to physics and biology and so on, and they were, in a sense, like you said, full of things that you didn't know. And mm-hmm. it was a, it, it was influential for me in becoming a an evolutionary biologist myself. Oh, okay. That plus my brother had had textbooks laying around the house from his schoolwork. He was older, ten years older than me, and I, I got those and read those, and I just thought it was really interesting and. Um. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah but it's interesting though today i think we're about the same age roughly uh, in, in those days books were not as common it was there weren't as many books out there there were the asimov yeah. books but there wasn't as many it, it now a new science book comes out several times a year uh-huh uh-huh instead of every year or two and it was and it's many authors instead of just a few so that's a difference between then and now i think one of the things that you talk about i don't remember the exact quote but it's in the first chapter of your book, I think, in which you basically reflect Dobzhansky's view that nothing in biology really makes sense except in the light of evolution. Well, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Then I'm going to tell you my story. Wait, about wait, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I want to hear your version first.
2: No, it's just that uh, there's no other way to understand biology if not through uh, uh, evolutionary theory in, in whatever incarnation you may want to Uh, To do that, I'm also a fan of Darwin. I mean, I'm a Darwinophile, uh, uh, as it were. And uh, it's something that it's simply majestic, mind-boggling and majestic at the same time. What I've noticed is, you know, I lately have been involved in the uh, debate and
1: discussion over climate change. It's not a debate, but the, you know, the the anti-science forces versus the science forces. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was at a meeting of citizens the other day, and someone mentioned the uh, petition that deniers had put out that had 25,000 scientists and engineers signed it saying climate change was not real. And I pointed out that most of those signatures were – a lot of them were fake, and very few were climate scientists. And of those, only a few actually could be tracked down to find out what their opinion was. It was a very fake list. But even aside from that, there these are – in America alone, there are about six – between six and seven – million scientists and engineers not counting people in the medical profession so mm-hmm. twenty-five thousand is actually a very small number but then it occurred to me that how often people in the biological fields are actually not
2: grounded in evolutionary theory as much as they should be exactly exactly that uh, uh, and that uh, i find that really odd how did they get to that point it's very hard to to answer to, for me to answer that question but i can tell you from the perspective of uh uh, university professor, I teach uh, general biology courses for non majors, and I I find a lot of resistance when I go to the uh, evolution units, and so uh, I even see students looking at me like uh, you know say uh, saying no with their eyes and, and whatnot. Mm. Yeah, you know it, it's this kind of thing, and the the way that I have tried to remedy that, as it were. It's to explain to them, listen, you have to distinguish between the theory of evolution and the fact of evolution. Remember Stephen Jay Gould uh, essay on that? Yeah. Evolution in fact and theory. So basically, I boil it down for them in this way. Life has changed uh, over time. There's organisms that were alive 10 million, 20 million, 60 million years ago uh, that are not around anymore. And there will be organisms 10 million years from now that are not around uh, right now. So that's evolution. That's change. A life changes over time. Okay. So and that's a fact. Nobody in the right mind or in their uh, in an honest way can deny that. Okay. Now another way, another thing is to try to explain how that evolutionary change came to be, and that's part of the reason why people are a little reluctant to deal with this type of uh, topics and whatnot. Also. There, I, I found that uh, many uh, people uh, mistakenly say that uh, evolution does not apply to their own field of expert expertise, particularly the medical
1: sciences,
2: Right. which yeah. is, again, uh, uh, the, uh, I don't use evolution for the, to get into medical school. Well, n- not exactly. Implicitly, you do. I mean, I don't have to convince you guys, but 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 you, but, but you know what I'm um, I'm coming
1: from. An example that I encountered recently, uh, you know, CRISPR is it is a uh-huh. method is a methodology for inserting some DNA into an existing genome, even in a living organism.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: so, it could be a means of of gene therapy for humans. You could take humans who who have a broken gene, or you want to add for some reason a gene that will be good for them, and you can put it in the person. And it will become part of their living soma, potentially, and mm-hmm. you've cured some disease. Uh, CRISPR comes from originally; it's a viral
2: product that. And it's a bacterial immunity.
1: Yeah, so it, it, there's, there's a there's a vir, It's basically the way a virus exploits a non viral cell for its own purposes, and by inserting itself into the cell, and as a result of that. As is always the case, when there's enough, when you let genes in a go to a party for long enough, they start to you know get into each other's space. So mm-hmm. those viral genes are found in non-viruses. They're found in bacteria, for example. The CRISPR gene sequence is a large, large family of genes. The gene sequences that are used by human scientists are taken from strep and staph bacteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The problem is. Sp- it turns out between 60 and 70-something percent of humans in a large recent study are have an immune reaction to those CRISPR sequences because we have been infected with strep or staph at one time or another. Exactly. Meaning that when we invent a, a gene and we want to insert it in a human, we're only going to be able to insert it in 30% of the humans because the rest of us will reject it. That I told that story to a, a, group, a handful of uh, biology teachers the other day, and one of them just immediately said, Oh, they should have gotten it from slime mold from a hot spring. You know? (laughs) Because they're not going to have immunity to human diseases. That was evolutionary biology not being included in the thinking when millions of dollars of NIH grants were given out.
0: I think it worked great in vitro, but they hadn't thought about that aspect of it when they were starting to get ready to prepare it to use in vivo, it sounds like, from what I heard the story on Quarks and Quarks.
1: Yeah, we're not even (laughs) Sure, why it doesn't? How bad this will be, but Onay, you and I have to form a commission where we look at all the grant proposals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just, no, seriously, I've always felt having a having a. You see this in other sciences as well, where there's a, often a very strong central theoretical paradigm that is not being paid attention to enough. And if you had some just theory thinkers looking at proposals and just commenting on them, I think we'd be way ahead. we we'd have a Tesla in space by now yep <laughs> that, that was pretty cool, yeah it, I guess it was yeah
0: the book is strange survivors and um uh-huh. uh, it you tell uh, or talk about a lot of the different um factors that allow animal and, and in some cases bacterial organisms to survive better than the competition. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you describe a little bit about how you, how you have the book organized
2: okay, I have it uh, organized it in uh, the usual introduction and uh, six uh, chapters. The first one, it's, uh, uh, and I wish I could take credit for the title of the first chapter, but it was the editors. Uh, the, uh, always trust <laughs> the editors. They know what they're doing. So uh, it's called the E word, and E, of course, stands for evolution. And I try to start laying the the the, the basis for what's going to be uh, uh, discussing the rest of the book. I talk a little bit of what about evolution is, what is not, uh, evolutionary arms, arms races. Uh, that's a favorite of mine. And, uh, I, I, take it from there. Chapter two is the language of life. And I know that there's uh, even whole books, uh, with that title, but there's no other way to, uh, to, uh, to title that chapter because it's about uh, a little bit about the things that makes, uh, life tick. Okay, I'm talking about several of the basics, fundamental cells, uh, things like that. And then in chapter three, I start with the actual action, as it were, uh, because I uh, I go uh, on chapter three uh, with organisms that use uh, electricity to survive. Essentially, the chapter style is uh, it, it it all starts with the spark. And then the, that chapter is one of my favorites because uh, for my historical reasons, I did my master's degree on uh, torpedo electric organ, the electric ray. And I I started talking about uh, electric eels, several uh, anecdotes about how they actually uh, were able to capture electric eels in the 1600s, 1700s and whatnot, and several aspects related to uh, electricity and how it affects, uh, the survival of an organism. So one part uh, of that chapter about uh, regeneration, uh, in my professional work, I work with flatworms, uh, planarians, and I do neuropharmacology with them, and I'm starting to get into regeneration. And that's, uh, bioelectricity is a topic that's been very much in under study. Chapter four, it's also one of my favorites. It's, uh, it's about the unusual suspects in the sense that many organisms use uh toxins and venoms uh to survive. But there's many different organisms that you wouldn't think of them as venomous or toxic. Okay, and, and that I try to concentrate on those. For that chapter, probably my the most curious organisms is the slow loris. Uh, it's the only toxic uh primate that uh has been described, not counting boyfriends and uh, this type of thing. Those guys, they actually have certain glands at the level of their elbows, uh, that actually they, they lick, uh, those glands and they spread the, that secretion all over their body. And it's highly toxic. And, uh, it's, it's only a matter of time because before somebody decides to call them elbow toxins, but I put it in the, I put it in the book first. So that, that's, uh, Uh, precedence, as it were. Uh, chapter five, I title it The Fast and the Hangry, and it's about speed and how organisms use speed to get what they want. So in, in that chapter, uh, readers are going to meet the, a little guy that's on the cover of the book that's called the mantis shrimp, and, uh, it's only one of many different species. Uh, and actually, uh, in our department, uh, we are going to, we just, just hired a new faculty member, who, uh, worked on that. So, uh, we're very excited about that. And I had very nice conversations with him. So the, uh, the point is that many different organisms, including the mantis shrimp, uh, they actually have learned to do applied physics, uh, in that sense, because they have developed ways of taking advantage of speed and force to actually get, uh, what they want. I include in that chapter also cnidarians. Like jellyfish and organisms like that, that actually yeah. expel their uh, their little venomous harpoons, the nematocysts, at high speed, uh, and that's how they can penetrate their their prey and whatnot. So on, on chapter six, I I, I thought it was the be, the very best survival tactic of them all, and I basically argue that it's about cooperation. Uh, it's about cooperation because. Uh, in that's another. Since we were talking about evolution, many people, you know, that many people have this misconception that evolution is all competition. I mean, uh, red right in tooth and claw, and all these type of things. Survival of the fetus, which Darwin never actually coined that phrase or anything like that. But cooperation, it's uh, a very important aspect of uh, evolution too. Just take uh, humans for example. It doesn't matter that we are arguably the most, I don't know, intelligent, uh, te- technological intelligent uh, beings on the planet. One human, just as is, uh, against a saber-toothed tiger or against a mammoth, well, game over. It was only through cooperation and communication that early humans were able to assert, I don't know, I don't like the phrase, the dominance uh, uh, over nature. And that's why why we are where we are. And uh, we added a postscript. And little goodies, I it were in the in the even in the index and everything I added some uh did you know questions uh, about that and I had a lot of fun writing this book yeah, it really looks like you had fun writing it it, it it's
1: just so people know this book is like a normal book. it's got the words, the chapters, et cetera <laughs> but also it, it falls it goes outside the box a little bit in the way it's laid out compared to a lot of other books it's it, it like you say, you got these little tidbits in there. And the whole style of the book is more engaging than the average. You're not relying entirely on how interesting nature is. It's also interestingly written, and it's very personal and personable. And I think that it's... Thank, it's, thank uh, you. It means me. I, I enjoyed reading your bioelectricity section, especially where you started off and said that very few people really... You, as an expert on some electric fish, didn't even have run into the electric catfish.
2: Oh, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, lower. I was embarrassed. Yeah,
1: I knew about the electric catfish because I was living with the pygmies in the Congo, and we would catch, uh-huh. we would catch them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the way they would do that, of course, is they would they would dam up a stream on the upper and lower ends of a stream, both ends, then empty the water out from the middle, so there'd be an area of maybe two or three hundred meters long of a small stream emptied out of all of its water. Hmm. Except puddles would be left out, and the cat the fish would all be in the puddles. And every now and then there'd be a puddle with a catfish in it, and sometimes they were electric catfish, and sometimes they would be charged up. So it was a combination of people being sort of afraid to go, and of course, you're going after these with your hands. Uh Uh-huh. And it was kind of interesting to see people thinking sometimes there might be a catfish in there and getting someone else to go for it. (laughs) Yeah, and just to hold every once in a while, there'd be a scream, and somebody would be shocked by the catfish. They're not fatal, but it, like I think you point out, it's more than a wall socket. It's it's, it's about it's it's more it's than sticking of, your, your finger in an American wall socket. Yes, yeah, a not, little bit more. Uh, yeah. If I recall correctly, it's about 400 volts or something like that. Yeah, so it's 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 a significant, but they're grounded in the water, and so I, I don't know. I think that it's I, I've heard of pe- I've heard
2: stories that people have been killed, but I've never.
1: I don't actually think that's very common, but.
2: Yeah, it depends on the condition of the person or, yeah, all all these type of things. I have a question for you. Go ahead. Uh, It's very, you know, when we talk about lizards,
1: when I was growing up and reading those Asimov books, I remember it was very clear that there was only really one poisonous lizard, the Gila monster. And the, Uh the beaded lizard was said to be not poisonous. I'm sorry, I mean venomous. Uh, yeah. The, the beaded the lizard, lizard was said to not be venomous. And of course, now we know that it is. Mm-hmm. And now we know that there are more and more lizards. And it's interesting, the story of the Komodo dragon is interesting because its negative effects from its bite were assumed to be an infection passed on. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, what people have to know is that Komodo dragon is actually just a giant monitor lizard. And monitor lizards right. smell really bad. They're covered with bacteria. They're just really dirty lizards because of what they eat and so on. But it's just interesting that venomous adaptations were not seen in lizards for so long, I think, because they were just not expected to be there. That's right. You know, And it makes That's... me wonder about birds because, as you point out in your book, you talk about the possibility of even theropod dinosaurs that have evidence that they may have been venomous. Yep. And there are 10,000 bird species alive today. And I know there's some toxic birds that you talk about, mm-hmm. but are we? Do you think there might be
2: venomous birds out there somewhere we just don't know about because we haven't really looked? That may. That's an interesting possibility. But the one thing that I can think about that is makes it not a little, uh, not too likely, is that uh, birds don't have teeth. That's no exactly does. what I was thinking too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and and most uh, most venomous animals, what they have is like. Uh, Grooves in their teeth, like fangs, things like that. I, I mean, I don't exclude completely exclude the possibility. The possibility nature nature always has a way of surprising us. But I'm I would be very skeptical about that. They could have a venomous uh,
1: talon. There could be a venomous talon, or a, or just a very derived beak. I, I I think the same thing. You tend to think of it yeah. as something with teeth because one of the pieces of evidence for venomous dinosaurs is heterodonti. They have yeah. That's right. They have some canine-like teeth, but yeah. But uh-huh.
2: still, it'd be interesting to. So, what about the toxic birds? <laughs> oh, those are uh, the Pituit, uh from uh, I think it's New Guinea, yeah. and and they they are an example of what we think is acquired toxicity. Uh, it's a little bit like the poison dart frogs that that I also talk about about in the book. Yeah. They are uh, in many cases they are not uh, they don't produce their own toxins, but rather. They uh, acquire uh, acquire them from the environment, from any type of uh, toxic insect and whatnot, and it's like a, a turtle over a turtle thing, because in many cases the insects are not toxic uh, either. It's just some bacteria that are toxic that are on the insect that the bird eats and it gets. But but that's pretty interesting. Uh, actually, they, in their in their language, they call it the rubbish bird because it's good for nothing Ooh. they eat it they cannot you know even the smell is uh able to make uh susceptible people uh like uh, you know uh allergic and things like that it's also interesting that
1: their name is petui which is what i think of it's the kind of cartoon sound you make when you eat something that doesn't taste good you spit it That's out. That's
2: right. I didn't. Uh, yeah. I so
1: you
0: know what to do in the uh, second edition of this book. Oh.
2: Great. Right. Well, uh, let, let's see if we if we get to the second edition, I'll credit. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'll credit you guys with that. Oh, well, yeah. I I'm interesting.
0: You notes that you have a uh, in the in the first note that you list is my beloved Bonessore by Brian Sweetak.
2: Oh yeah, and, yeah,
0: yeah. And I have a little tie to that. When he was writing that book, he sent me a couple of the galleys to read through um, before he even had them sent into the publisher and sent into the editor. So I was pretty interested that I had a little tie into that one
2: as well. Yeah. That was a really uh, good. Book. I credit Brian Swedeck and uh, um, Mark Changizi with my my impetus for writing books and whatnot because I always. You know, I, I'm a professional scientist. I've written papers and whatnot, but I've always had this itch to to write a book. And I read a blog from Shangisi and Swedeck, uh, uh essentially saying, "Well, so you want to write a science book?" And they actually advise in the in the in the blog post to start blogging, and that's exactly what I started doing. It. And uh, my blog, it's I'm gonna do a little blog here. It's. Uh-huh. Uh, it's bald scientists as in, uh, scientists with no hair, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, for obvious reasons. And actually that led to, uh, the publication of my first book, uh, that, that went out in, uh, uh 2014. Uh, that was, uh, titled the first brain, the neuroscience of planarians. And it's a little more te- technical than, uh, than strange survivors, but not by much in that is much more. Focused on uh, flatworms and the history of flatworms, how it relates to biology, all these type of things. So, but but yeah, no. Uh, Brian was uh, also instrumental in my decision to start writing, and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I actually credited him in the, in the first book. Well, good. I'm glad he did.
0: I like this blog, Laylops, and um, and he's a really good writer.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that
1: he is. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, my mic was off for a second there. Um, how do you address? The argument we often hear, I have a feeling from reading your book and talking to you that you are more or less an adaptationist, like you think adaptations are real, that life is shaped around adaptations to some extent, that they occur. But so, there, To
2: some t- extent, yeah. I, I, I'm, uh, I have to uh, give you a disclaimer. Uh, I'm not a professional uh, evolutionary biologist. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but, but yes, uh, the qualified answer is yes, yeah.
1: Well, we, we hear sometimes people talk about neutral theory and the whole idea that Adaptations aren't shaped by evolution so much; they just kind of occur. We see it as an we see it as something, and we add a history and a story behind it to explain it, which doesn't really explain how it got there. And well,
2: you're you're thinking about the spandrels of some Marcos. Well, yeah. that, that that's part of it.
1: that that's part of it because certainly uh, Gould started this argument with that. And I uh, wanted to uh, distinguish between aptation and adaptation, but also it comes from neutral theory, which is Kimura and the idea that uh, the, the, if adaptations were really shaping evolution, since evolution is change in gene frequency over time, then mm-hmm. we should see when we do uh, molecular clocks of organisms, when you have organisms that seem to be really different from each other mixed with those that are not, there should be different time lengths. It should wreck the time, the time scale, the ability for a molecular clock to be to be correctly calibrated would be ruined uh-huh. by lineages that undergo lots of adaptation.
2: Yeah, that, that that makes sense. But I don't have the the expertise to actually uh, give you an intelligent answer okay. about. It. I, I just you know my personal feeling is that is that sort of
1: everybody's right about this. Uh, yeah. That if you have, uh, if there's a trend that happens. You know, back in the eighties you know Hamilton did his work and you know Trivers and other people in behavioral biology created uh-huh. this, this idea and, uh, and uh, of you know, like you talk talk about social groups are important and and a sort of an emergent quality of of sociality is higher fitness and so on and i remember a great example is Tim Caro, who did work on cheetahs and he showed in his first work it was published in natural history and as a teacher i used his natural history article and his published articles in tutorials to talk about evolution because they're really good, and he talked about how uh, a, a if you have if you have two cheetahs and they're both males, they will have those males will have a higher f- collective fitness. Therefore, the mother has a higher collective fitness than if they're a male and a female, because they will have, form a coalition and fight off other male cheetahs. So, two females is better than a male and a female, and somewhere in between is two males and whatever. He had a calculus worked out, and okay. it is based on field data and and theory. <sighs> And then he did about four more years of research and was never able to show the pattern to hold up. Okay. And there's countless examples of, of interesting adaptations that make sense when they're first described, but then go away when the data accumulate, which makes you wonder how all this works, I think. I and mean, to me, what, what's really happening is life is more complicated than our theory allows oh, description oh, yeah. of. And that's yeah. probably, probably why things really are working, but they're only working every 15 years. And that's when everything dies except the things that are working really well because of a drought or something like that.
2: No, I, I completely agree with that. Life is much more complex than we can even imagine at this point. Even, even though uh, every single time when we think we have it figured out a little bit, <laughs> so, something happens, yeah. Yeah, that's why I don't understand how people could be chemists. <laughs> I'm each I, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I actually get the American Chemical Society newsletter, and they do invent new things all the time. They're, but it's you know, but basically, like the periodic table, you know, the, the biological version of the periodic table is. <laughs> oh yeah, is, is not it's, it's not the gene it's not the uh, you know, the, the, the central dogma of genetic
2: how genes work it's it's a much
1: bigger thing and we don't even know what it looks oh like. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah absolutely right i mean uh whenever uh I hear people say well uh, we've heard the last word about biology when we sequenced uh, a genome you, oh, okay. yeah exactly so you're you're starting you're just started you know at that point how many
0: dimensions do you think that a table would have to be for biology like the, the periodic table is two-dimensional three, four, five dimensions biology wouldn't even cover a table
2: Absolutely. You know, as
0: far as how, how it branches out and all the different ways that it's interconnected.
2: Absolutely.
1: You also, in your book, talk about, I mean, these are smaller bits, but I, I want to point them out because I think they're particularly interesting. One thing you talk about is is time and space and sort of scales of time and space. Oh, yeah. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? That it, 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 you th- You're talking about things that you can't really think about realistically without having some kind of touchstone or metaphor or way of thinking about or perspective
2: it's it's a it's a matter of thinking uh when we talk about really big numbers or really small numbers i mean we can say billions we can say trillions but we don't really get them uh because we our minds are not equipped to deal with such big numbers and the way i try to explain it to my students when i talk about billions for example i ask them to uh to guess how long it, would it take to count from one to one billion and and i you know uh, i collect the answers and whatnot so they are always surprised when i tell them that it's 32 years and change uh, i mean that's from one to one billion with a b okay so when uh, that's uh at one extreme when you go to the other extreme very small numbers especially uh time scales uh i think uh, i remember that i used the example of an eye blink uh which is uh, right. a, 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 a 300 milliseconds something like that okay and, and i use several comparisons to try to illustrate uh those uh measurements uh really big measurements or really small measurements it's interesting to me that if you take a
1: tesla and you drive it faster and faster and faster as you approach a few hundred miles an hour at the at the at the most wind resistance will cause it to stop moving. But if it was in outer space, if there happened to be a Tesla in outer space and you kept making it go faster, kept it accelerating, it would actually become very difficult to move it past some percentage of the speed of light because the amount of energy it takes, right? But one end of a DNA strand inside a cell, when that DNA strand is unwinding, it's probably moving at that speed. Yeah, that's right. How does that happen? <laughs> how can, a, how can okay. it happen? <laughs> an it, atom in a Tesla can't do it, but an atom in a, inside your cell can?
2: Well, uh, uh, my unqualified, non-expert answer would be that at the molecular level, they are less hampered by, uh, I don't know, the molecules of wind or liquid or whatever. They can uh, squeeze through them, uh, as it were. Yeah, but it's still it's but, even in the outer space
1: uh, comparison. I mean, it's I, I'm sure that's true that they're not. It's it, it, it's sort of like saying you know why can't a, a semi drive through a city without using a road? It hits the houses, but it can go mm-hmm. between the roads. That's fine, but uh, there's still a constraint of speed. It just, you know, I'm not sure what the speed really is, but it, it just to me, it's just a, a remarkable that like you say, you have a, a very very powerful paragraph in your book in which you talk about how everything is moving all the time. Yeah, <laughs> no matter how still you think you're being, you're actually moving a lot, even inside your body. There's just so much movement, and that's not even at the quantum level. <laughs> oh, oh
2: yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Uh, one of the standard things that I do for uh, some of my advanced students is that I show them a picture of uh, the interior of a cell from a textbook. Okay, mm-hmm. and they always uh, show it. I don't know one receptor here, maybe one strand of DNA and whatnot, and then. I showed them a picture of what a cell would actually look like uh inside inside of it uh one uh from this uh, uh author uh good i don't know if it, the the guy that actually uh draws very detailed uh molecular structures mm-hmm. and and they uh, i mean they they are blown away by how densely packed the cells are and that they are always moving. Uh, always, always, always moving and uh, there's nothing that is actually stays still. Uh, in that case, movement is life, period. It is truly amazing.
1: And again, that's that's one thing I like about your book is that you have these sort of, edit, instead of just telling the stories about interesting animals, you have these frameworks that are perspectives to help sort of understand them. Or Another thing you talk about, too, is the origin of life. Apparently, there's a fight, mm-hmm. there's a big fight on the internet that I started inadvertently. Apparently, a lot of people in evolutionary biology in the past tried to say the origin of life is not the same as evolution. Evolutionary biologists do not study the origins of life; it's only a matter of chemistry. And I think they said that to avoid having to explain to religious people anything. Just let's—you can believe that God created the origin, but then the rest of it is evolution. Thank you. And mm-hmm. and as a result of that, there's currently this theme, and even real live evolutionary biologists will say. It's not a matter of consideration by evolutionary biologists at all. And I wrote something a while ago on my blog that, that challenges that idea and says, no, it, it's not true because part of things that aren't life yet could have actually been in an evolutionary framework. They could have been competing with each other or whatever. And, and it's, it's like anything. Like if you wanted to study the, 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 the nature of American government and culture and society, but you weren't allowed to think of anything that happened before the signing of the Constitution, mm-hmm. that would be crazy. You make the point that life started as
2: soon as it possibly could. Mm -hmm. What do you think that means? You you inevitably have to go back to chemistry in that sense. Uh, It seems to be based on the little we know about the uh, possible origin of life is that all the conditions that uh, life found uh, necessary for it to appear were present on the early earth. And if we think of biology as an emergent, I'm sorry, not biology, life, as an emergent uh, property of the cooperation of molecules. Uh, I mean, you, you can think about it in those terms. But uh, frankly, something that it's, uh, well, you know this b- way better than I do, uh, based on your experience, is highly debated, uh, and nobody exactly knows uh, what happened there. Uh, as far as what it means, I mean, it, it brings me hope of that, that, that there's life out there, period. That's yet another can of worms right there. Yeah, I I tend to agree. The fact
1: that it's only one data point, but the fact that life seems Uh to have started as early as it could have is meaningful to me. There's things I wonder about, though. I wonder about the possibility. If life is going to start inevitably, then could it have started in more than one place and more than one time in the early Earth?
2: Oh, yeah, that's one of the uh, possibilities, uh, it, it, many people, yeah, many people think that that may have been the case, yeah. And it would be a matter of who ate who first, right? Uh. So, so, as it were.
1: so if you went back two billion years or so, you might even find more than one form of life that actually has different origins still around. And and mm-hmm. could, we don't think there are. They could there could be now. There could be a form of life out there that has a separate origin than all the other life, and we just haven't found it yet. But over time, the gambler's dilemma takes effect too, and we just by random yeah. chance, it's highly unlikely there's another form of life out there, but possibly in the geochemical record, but it would be almost impossible to see it. But the other thing is, when, when we look at the evidence from Mars, there's little tiny bits of evidence that show that if you found it on Earth, you would just more or less classify it as evidence of life. Yeah. And when you say it on Mars, we don't, because we want to be more cautious in that interpretation. But if there was a planet in which life never existed, but was otherwise sort of Earth-like, that it had an atmosphere and water and so on... Are there geological processes that would create structures that look like those things that can't exist on Earth because life is there? Like you said, it depends on what eats what first. Life takes mm-hmm. up all those molecules. It, it ruins everything for the geology. So we don't have analogs on Earth that are geological processes that create things that look like bacteria because it's always bacteria. Well, because
2: the thing is that uh, if life would uh, would start again, though, some Someplace else it would be immediately eaten because there, there, there's life all over the place now. Right. Okay, so that's one thing. As far as uh, what you said before, in terms of uh, essentially life as we don't know it, uh, some people have uh, talked about uh, shadow biospheres. I'm sure you have yeah. heard about the term uh, and everything. Uh, but uh, those uh, are types of life that we wouldn't even be able to recognize them as alive. I, I mean, But so far, uh, as we know, every single type of life that we uh, can find in this planet must have had the same origins. We're all related uh, in terms of the commonalities, especially like uh, the DNA that everybody uses, ATP, uh, all these type of things. Uh, In order to find something fundamentally different, uh, uh, I mean, we we have to really think outside of the box, as it were. So as far as Mars is concerned, as much as I would like Mars to be, uh, alive, okay, I really think, and again, I'm not, uh, an expert astrobiologist or anything like that. My, my biased personal opinion is that Mars may have been alive and the, uh, little hints that there will still be life there, it, it's because life is on its way out. Uh, oh, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, because life changes, uh, the, 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 the whole planetary environment. Uh, just look at us. A- and uh, you know, this is not my idea. Many people have uh, talked about that before. And uh, I- I- again, I think that uh, may have we may have found fossils in Mars, uh, but uh, maybe you know uh, some random remnants, remnants of life. But I, I don't think it's going to be very highly populated. Uh, you know.
1: Yeah, I-, I agree. So if there was life on so Mars time- now, it would be very. If there was life on Mars now, it would be obvious because it would be. It would be doing. It would be using the resources that exist there now and turning things over chemically, all the time. It would be it, exact. It, Mars so would there be, would blue. be Higher <laughs>
0: oxygen oxygen content in the atmosphere, or something like that.
1: Yeah. Yep. That's right. Yeah. I don't expect it to be now, but in the past, there's good reason to believe that Mars uh, is inhospitable to life of a wide range of forms now, but could have been a little more hospitable in the past. So maybe in the past there was life there. Yeah.
0: yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, the naked mole rat a little bit. You you mentioned that was an example of a eusocial um, animal. Yeah, a mammal. Um, I'd like to explain a little bit more about what what eusocial is and then how how does a naked mole rat fit in, because we tend to think of them as being solitary animals underground. How how would they be eusocial?
2: Okay, so eusociality is uh, defined in uh, a couple of uh, rather strict ways. And uh, traditionally, the eusocial organisms are like, uh, again, uh, ants, termites, uh, some bees, and whatnot. But uh, there are, uh, I'm actually looking at the, trying to find the, the page here uh, in the book. 165? Yeah, that
0: 165. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it memorized.
2: I'm just looking at it right now. That's- oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. So. So there are, uh, again, several uh, specific uh, uh, requirements to classify uh, an organism of being uh, eusocial. Uh, one of them is, again, that they tend to have only a limited number of reproductive uh, members, like the proverbial queen, the, the drones, things like that. So they also uh, have another cast uh, of members that they don't reproduce, but are nevertheless in kind of in charge of taking care of the young and all these type of things. And also, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, there are at least two or three generations that actually overlap uh, in that particular uh, place. So based on that uh, definition, the naked mole rat is eusocial, uh, and that's actually a very interesting uh, story too, because in a zoological uh a meeting. there was a a person who was actually and i mentioned the idea the, the story in the book that uh was actually explaining what an eusocial mammal would look like okay uh, in purely theoretical terms and uh when the person was giving the presentation another guy was uh, raised his hand and said well you're talking about the naked mole rat <laughs> so, so so it existed uh, in nature uh so and those guys are rather uh, interesting because, in terms of uh, longevity, for example, they live way longer than than they should based on their size uh, and and you know the, the scaling rules and whatnot. Uh, they live way longer. Uh, there was uh, like a misconception that they didn't get cancer or anything like that. Apparently, they do, but at a much lower rate that you that you would you would expect too. Uh, so, But uh, those guys are really worth uh, more study, uh, certainly. Have you ever seen a
1: documentary called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control? No, I haven't, no. I, I, I like to recommend it to people. It's Errol Morris directed it. It's about a, a topiary gardener, a lion tamer who's retired, but he's training up someone to take over his job, a, uh, a robotics designer, and a naked bull rat expert. Well, he's not an expert. He's like a person who got interested in them. And it's really about how complicated things have common properties and how things emerge from complexity
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so on. It's just a very interesting I, – when I was teaching uh, sort of middle-range evolutionary biology to people, I would, I would, I would always show the documentary and I'd ask students to write up a few paragraphs of what they thought it meant. And and nine out of ten students would write, I have no idea why I had to waste my time watching this stupid documentary. And one out of ten students would say, this changed the way I think about everything in life. Yep. So it's, it's one of those things that it just has to. But I think I think you would, this would be one that would fit. You'd use it in your next book because I think it's, you think about a topiary yeah. is a form of life that has been shaped. You talk about genes. Oh, we should talk about that in a second. Uh, a genes requiring a context to, to do what they normally do. Uh-huh. A topiary giraffe is a giraffe made out of a bush growing in the context of a topiary gardener snipping at it every day for, you know, 35 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Naked Bull Rat Society is a product of all these different individuals acting in a slightly different way than, like, normal rats and coming up with this behavior. Tell us about
2: about mice that don't have the correct head on them. Oh, okay. That's uh, in the uh, bioelectricity chapter. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, first of all, uh, that's an example that I used <laughs> So, uh, f- from uh, to compare a very interesting experiment. Right, sorry, from there, were no, there were no mice with the wrong heads.
1: <laughs> right. no. that,
2: was a, that was a metaphorical example you were but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> okay, okay, so, so <laughs> basically uh, that, uh, it's, it's a, an experiment from a researcher called Mike Levin at Tufts University. I know him. He's a great guy. And when they give the Nobel Prize for research related on planarians and whatnot, I'm sure he will be one of them. So, Great. uh, I- I'm saying it <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, some time ago, he published an experiment in which they, uh, modified the bioelectrical properties of, uh, regenerating planarians. So let me go back for a second. You know that flatworms, planarians are those, uh, organisms that you can actually cut their heads off and they can grow up a new head, brains and everything. Okay. So, moreover, if you teach a planarian, you train it to avoid light or to go towards the light and whatnot, very simple behavioral training sessions, you, you cut their heads off, you allow the brain to regenerate, they still remember the training for the most part. Uh, those were very controversial experiments uh, in the 1970s and whatnot, but this person that I mentioned, Mike Levin, he actually replicated them with proper controls, computer uh, monitor it, so it's a real effect, okay? So uh, one thing that he did was to actually modify the bioelectrical properties of uh, regenerating planarians of one species, okay? So he noticed that a certain percentage of the regenerating planarians regenerated uh, their heads as expected, but some percentage of the planarians that were regenerating they regenerated heads that look uh, shape-wise like the heads of different planarian species, and oh. the the difference was not only in the shapes, uh, were resembled more uh, the actual uh, brain structure of the different planarian species. Mind you, the genes are not changing. Okay, there's no change in genes, nothing, no mutation, nothing like that. Moreover. When they took the chemicals that disrupt the bioelectrical properties of the cell away, the planarians rearranged their heads and their brains as if the genome was reasserting itself. Okay? So that's when I came up with uh, the comparison of if you could do this in in mice, which you cannot do it because you cannot regenerate uh, – mice cannot regenerate their heads – but if you could do it with 100 mice, about 30% of those would regenerate mice heads. Uh, I don't know, a certain percentage would regenerate chipmunk heads. Another percentage, groundhog. I mean, that blew my mind completely because they uh, those different planarian species bear the same evolutionary distance than mice, rats, chipmunks, groundhogs, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So uh, the genes clearly, uh, as we were talking about about that a few minutes ago. Are certainly not the whole story. They exist within the context of the environment, and when you change the environment, somehow in this particular example by changing the electrical properties of our regenerating cells, I mean you you change the the expression, the development. So it, it, it's it's again uh, really uh, well, mind-boggling. I say that a lot because it's true. So- it's really mind-boggling.
0: There are a lot of dormant genes out there that never simply get expressed. I was reading uh, a few years ago that they had discovered in the shark genome that they actually have uh, genes that would express fingers and thumbs,
2: uh-huh.
0: but they've never actually because there's no hand, you know, in in their genetic structure. There's no hands in there, so they don't have mm-hmm. the opportunity to be expressed
1: as
2: actual fingers and thumbs.
1: And ultimately. This could ah, es- go
2: well go ahead. Not that that uh, not so long ago there were even examples of scientists who actually were able to tweak the genes of developing chicks, uh, and they mm. uh, got teeth. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so like dinosaurs. And Ooh. just uh, I mean wh- one way to illustrate that uh, again, I, I have to go back to to my students because I I think about all these uh, comparisons actually in many cases to help students understand biology because. Uh, when we talk about, uh, again, genes, uh, that you have the genetic endowment to do something does not necessarily uh, guarantee that you will do it. The example that I, that I usually give them, let's suppose we have a child that uh, has the genes to be, I don't know, a seven-footer and an Olympic athlete, okay? so But that child may, uh, regrettably, may have a, an accident or an infection, may uh, grow up in, under malnutrition uh, or abuse, those genes were, are not going to be completely expressed. So, uh, and that's a kind of an extreme uh, example of how it's not nature or nurture; it's both.
0: i was just thinking about the Hmong the Hmong in Minnesota when they first started settling in Minnesota. Most of them had very short height, four eleven, five foot, and so forth like the first generation in the 70s mm-hmm. that came through. And they were a jungle population. They had a jungle diet and so forth in uh, Cambodia and in Vietnam and so forth. They were brought over and uh, um, started as they as they changed their diet. They started growing. And now they, in the generation that is a uh, um, millennial generation, they tend to be much, much taller and more along the average heights of uh, uh, white people that lived in Minnesota. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's actually, it's a, uh, talking about, you talked before about showing a cell, the simplified version of a textbook of a cell. It's no uh-huh. longer as true, but you still can find in textbooks a graph showing variation in height, of stature of humans, and the, the discussion will be that stature in humans is a polygenic effect, and that's why it varies the oh, way yeah. it does. This is simply uh-huh. not yeah. true. That scientists mm-hmm. study variation, and our our main goal most of the time is to explain observed variation. And the explanation mm-hmm. for variation in human height, in almost all cases, is not ever genes. <laughs> it is th- there's a couple of populations that actually do have stature genes, stature alleles, uh, that in, that have to do with g- growth factors. So FA pygmies, uh-huh. when you take FA pygmies at birth and graze them up with lots of food, they do not get taller. Than they would have otherwise been, because they have a, a ILGF2 gene which doesn't function, so they, they simply don't go through the second growth phase. Uh, uh-huh. and there's probably other populations like that too. But for the most part, all the variation we see in height is is from diet and, and that kind of thing.
2: That's right. I think that one of the classical examples is the Dutch population. Yeah. That uh, uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the Dutch were actually below average height-wise, uh, like uh, a grown man like five five something like that. And right now they're the tallest of the tall, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, because of diet changes and all these type of things.
1: This, this is actually how the uh, in behavioral biology and, and related things with humans. Uh, it was Robert Trivers who kind of got symmetry going as a thing to study, because symmetry in symmetrical animals symmetry requires everything to be working correctly, so that you should be able to mm-hmm. if you're if you're assessing mates by quality, you should be able to look at a mate and estimate <coughs> symmetry. And symmetry should indicate symmetry should indicate quality of some kind. But he pointed out at the time that there is no optimal body mass. That's for, mm-hmm. for like mammals, and that's something, that's something that varies over time with conditions. And there isn't one that works. By the way, the genetic thing you were talking about before, Mike—genes that aren't uh, expressed anymore but are still there—this mm-hmm. could help explain why we don't have the secondary evolution of uh, venomous birds, because if there were tetrapod dinosaurs generally that included venomous adaptations and there were genes for that. Birds don't have those hidden genes. They have really small, trimmed-down genomes because cell size is relates so much to metabolism that they need to have very small cells. So a a very large... If you take a goby fish, a huge percentage of a goby fish's genes are simply never expressed. It's like junk DNA with all kinds of dead genes in there. Whereas with Mm -hmm. birds, they don't have... Junk DNA. They have a little. If, you, if you're going to find junk DNA in birds, you find it secondarily evolved in in the ground birds, the birds that don't fly. Bats don't have much either, which means they've lost mm-hmm. that. If if those dead genes actually ever do come into play because of a mutation that they come back and get to be used for something, they've lost that library of genes.
0: Because so that might, that plants that? have larger uh, genomes than, than animals because it's not quite. Um, Dependent on the size of their cells because they've got different structures um, as far as their metabolism goes.
1: Yeah, Uh anything that flies has to have such an efficient metabolism that they're going to have a trimmed-down genome. Everything else, it doesn't matter so much, especially things that swim in water. Okay. And so far, just just to be clear, disclaimer, so far we haven't mentioned plants. You don't really mention them in your book. (laughs) We're just disregarding uh plants completely here, but that's Okay.
2: No, I actually uh, I actually uh, give that disclaimer myself because yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not because uh, I don't think plants are uninteresting or anything like that. Quite the contrary, they're master survivors. It's just that I don't know enough about them uh, to actually write coherently. Yeah, uh, but wait until my next book comes out. We can talk about it uh, later uh, offline, as it were. <laughs>
0: I would like to thank you for listening and invite you to go to iconocast.com to check out the links to One Pagan's blog, Bald Scientist, and to purchase a copy of his book through Amazon. Just think, if you purchase an e-book copy, you could be reading it before your kids finish their dessert. Be sure to watch for upcoming episodes of Iconocast and remember to share our podcast with your friends and colleagues.